Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast, a deep dive rewatch podcast, spending time with America's favorite radio station, WKRP in Cincinnati. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm his wife, Donna. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the trivia, the characters, and the details that have made WKRP one of America's favorite syndicated sitcoms for nearly 40 years. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another WKRP cast and a quick thank you to everybody who voted for us. We got back in the podcast magazine top 50. So Yay! thanks for your voting. Thank you. And keep voting. <laughs> keep voting. Keep voting. Yes. Yeah. So, all right. Well, Donna, what have we got today? Today we are talking about who is Gordon Sims. The air date was the 2nd of April, 1979, written by Hugh Wilson and Tom Chihok. Storied editors... Tom Chihok, Bill Dial, Blake Hunter, and Emily Marshall. Directed by Rod Daniel. Venus is forced to confess his real name and the fact that he is wanted for a desertion from the Army. We should mention our director, Rod Daniel. Rod's first directing assignment for WKRP was our last episode, Commercial Break, and we didn't give him a shout-out. Rod is going to go on to be the number one director for the entire series. So these are the starting spots for our director, Rod Daniel. Also, we talked to Tom Chihok, writer of this episode, and he was one of the story editors for the first season. We did a great Zoom interview with Tom. During the interview, he raised a couple of questions about things he couldn't remember. He said, I should call Tim about that. Well, he did. He called Tim Reed, Venus Flytrap, for some clarification on things. Tom called back on the phone after he talked to Tim. Now, I wasn't ready to record from the phone, but what he was saying was so cool, I hit a record button on the editor and held the phone up to a microphone. The audio in that part is not great, but the information is awesome. We learned that Tom started at MTM as a gopher. Go for coffee, go for this, go for that, for the writers on all of the MTM shows. When Hugh Wilson hired him for his writer's room on WKRP, Tom was 24 years old. He hadn't come to Hollywood wanting to be a writer, but he took the job because of some advice he'd been given by director Michael Zinberg. I came out of Hollywood to be a director. I wanted to direct. I went to film school at the University of Iowa, and I wanted to direct. I was on the MTM lot as a gopher, you know, doing all my stuff for everybody. And I don't know if you've ever heard the name Michael Zinberg, but he was a producer of the Tony Randall sure. Show. Yeah. He was a big-time producer there. Zinberg cornered me one day. I had a very interesting relationship with him. But he cornered me one day, and he said, Chuck, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to direct. And he said, then write. Because if you write, someday, somewhere, 
someone will say, I love this script. And you can say, you can't have it unless I can direct. We've got a lot more great stuff with Tom Cheehawk. Be listening for it throughout the show. Okay, it's time to meet Gordon Sims. We start out in the lobby. And right away... And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye NewsHawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now, here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nessman. Right pinky finger. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb Award-winning journalist, Les Nessman. Herb and Les, we've got Lurb working together out in the lobby, getting pictures of the DJs for the full-page ad in the newspaper, promoting Johnny's and Venus's appearances at a used car dealership. But we don't find out it's a used car dealership because Herb uses the name of it. Heinrich Mauser's World of Oriental Bargains. Heinrich Mauser's World of Oriental Bargains. Where in that are you getting used car dealer? Used car guy. That's him. Forget it. I don't do personal appearance. But Johnny did do a personal appearance at Dell's. Yeah, so he's pulling that I don't do personal appearances. He also, uh, you know, flipped out that it's in my contract thing. He doesn't have a contract either. (laughs) So I don't think he can enforce this personal appearances thing. Well, while we're in this scene, we look behind Johnny and we see the magazine's downbeat and record review in that magazine rack on the wall. I kind of remember record review. It came out bi-monthly. It was a music review magazine, started in January of 1976. Eh, They weren't very successful. They ceased publication by the 80s. Now, record review, not to be confused with international record review, which is a British publication and tends to do some classical as well. Yes. Downbeat Magazine is a heavy-duty jazz magazine that has branched out to cover other musical styles. They get their name from the first count of a four-beat measure, which is the downbeat they've been covering jazz since 1934 downbeat is published monthly now we got lurb working on this project out here in the lobby chasing down uh, these guys for these pictures and uh He's he's getting a little sick of Johnny's attitude. Johnny, please, would you try to look like a dedicated professional? So Johnny responds to that by posing in the doorway in a, a real model pose. He pulls his shirt off so he's exposed his shoulder. He's got his foot up on the door jam. Uh, it's a great visual. <laughs> Venus enters. What's happening? <laughs> so Herb asks him to step over under the WKRP sign, but Venus doesn't move. Herb kind of touches him on the shoulder, kind of, you know, that this way, please. And it, and Venus stays stock still. Uh, Venus, I'm glad you're here. Look, uh, would you mind stepping over here under the WKRP sign? That's terrific. That'll be fine, right? And Herb gets it immediately and just kind of straightens Venus's jacket a little bit. Uh, Venus not wanting his photo taken. Take my picture. I'm going to break your arms and your camera. Threatening Les. But Herb just kind of laughs and he tells Les that Venus is just joking. I'm not joking, Lester. He's he, he not joking. <laughs> so Johnny thinks it's a DJ thing. Hey, Venus, it's just some jive ad for the paper, man. But Venus is adamant. No. He heads back toward the studio and on his way out, he kind of shoves Johnny a little bit, which is not like Venus at all. This kind of gives us the tone early on for this episode. This is not 
a light and funny episode of WKRP. This is pretty serious and heavy. It is a great story, but there are not a lot of laughs. We asked Tom where the idea came from to do such a dramatic story in the context of a sitcom. It was my idea. I pitched it. It was one of the first shows I pitched. Hugh loved it, I remember. We all kind of loved it because it was an anti-Vietnam show. This is kind of Tom's thing when it comes to scripting. He likes backstory. We just knew this character, Tim Reed's character, is Venus Flytrap. And I thought, oh, who's Venus Flytrap? And I think that's what everybody was asking at the station. Who's Venus Flytrap? And I said, well, his real name is uh, Gordon Sims, and he's this guy, and he deserted from the Army, and he didn't want, that's why he doesn't want his picture taken. And he doesn't want to be known. And he's a, you know, and that that's kind of where, as I remember, it came from. It's just, let's look into the backstory of who Venus Flytrap is. So I was curious, was this script a tough pitch to the network? We all were pitching ideas. And this is one that I pitched and the network said, you're not going to get near that with a 10-foot pole. Herb grabs Les's camera. He's kind of had it with this DJs not wanting their pictures taken. He says it's silly, and he chases after Venus. Kind of brave on Herb's part, considering that Venus just really did threaten Les. That was kind of tense. But Les is concerned. What's wrong with Venus, Johnny? And Johnny's kind of brushing it off. You know, man, we all have our own little peculiarities. (laughs) As he finishes the sentence, he puts his hand on Les's right shoulder, Let's it run across Les's face, <laughs> his left shoulder, and across his back as he heads toward the door leading to the studio. We say that there aren't a lot of laughs in this one. We get a couple of B and C stories in here. So there there is a little fun happening, but the main A story is very serious. Well, Les has this shocked look on his face as Johnny's leaving. And he turns to look at Johnny, and Johnny does this little fingers wiggle wave to Les before he disappears. And we're into our cold open. WKRP in Cincinnati. So we come back from the cold open. We're in the bullpen. Bailey is sitting at her desk when Andy comes in, and he is looking for an employee home address list. Do we have everybody's home address? Well, Bailey thinks she does, and she gestures to this gigantic thing on her desk. That is a Rolodex. Do you have a Rolodex? I had a Rolodex in I had college. a Rolodex. I didn't have the spinny one. I had one with the flip-up lid, which really technically is not a Rolodex. Not a Rolodex. Yeah, it's got to be the roll to be the Rolodex. Yes, and mine even had the little plastic cover that when you weren't using it, you could pull the plastic Ooh. cover over it to keep the dust off of all you of your... You had the deluxe model. Uh, maybe that was. My goodness. The Rolodex was invented in 1956 by a Danish engineer named Hildar Nielsen. Uh, He was the chief engineer at the stationary factory Zephyr American, which was located in New York. The Rolodex holds specially shaped index cards. The user writes or types the contact information for one person or company onto each card. The cards are notched to be able to be snapped in and pulled out of the rotating spindle. And as soon as Rolodex came up with this thing, everybody figured out ways to make it easier. Something that people would do a lot. I used to do this. Take someone's business card and just tape it directly onto the Rolodex card. 
Well, some companies uh, even produced business cards in the shape of Rolodex cards as a marketing tactic. They had to have that exact little notch at the bottom. It had to be spaced exactly right and the exact right shape, and it would fit on a Rolodex reel. If you didn't have Rolodex, it wouldn't fit. Travis is asking Bailey for Johnny's address, and she looks, and it's not there. You got lessons? Nessman. <laughs> nope. Well, do you have yours? Uh-uh. Bailey strikes me as more conscientious than that. You know, well, if Andy, you have if, Bailey if up her, on a pedestal. If Andy anyway. asked her to keep all the addresses, I think she'd have all the addresses. She seems really confused about this project. Well, he asks her if she has anybody's. Oh, Mr. Louis D'Angelisto. Well, who's he? I don't know. Who the heck is Louis <laughs> D'Angelisto? Former DJ. I don't know who, where that name came from. And I looked it up just to see if we were missing a joke, and I don't think so. Herb and Les enter the bullpen, and Herb tells Andy that they need to have a powwow. This morning, Venus Flytrap threatened Les Nesman physically. You following that? Herb to Andy to Venus to Les. And they said, <laughs> tried to stick ectochrome in Herb's mouth. Andy says... What? And we get the gag then of Herb just repeating the exact same story word for word. And then he tells Les to help him out. Les starts repeating the exact same story word for word. Okay. Ectochrome. He tried to put ectochrome in Herb's mouth. And it's spelled E-K-T-A-C-H-R-O-M-E. What is that? That's a word that Kodak made up for a type of film that they created back in the 1940s. Ectochrome was the first version of a Kodak film. It was later replaced by the more sophisticated Kodachrome, but Ectochrome is a super fast film and gets a lot of really deep, rich colors, so National Geographic uses it a lot. So the E-K in Ectochrome stands for Eastman Kodak. Yeah, they like to slip their name in there because then in Kodachrome, that's just taking the K off of Kodak. They began to phase out Ektachrome in 2009, even though it was very popular with hobbyists because it was easy to process. By 2013, all Ektachrome was gone. Kodachrome. Yeah, replaced by Kodachrome. Explains. Andy, something's wrong with Venus. He refused to let me take this picture for the car dealer ad. So Herb asks Andy what he's going to do about it. Oh, well, gee whiz, Herb, let me see. And Les poses the question. How well do we really know Venus anyway? Les is all about the conspiracy theories, and Herb is just in everybody's business. And you put the two of them together, and this is what we get. Andy tells Les to spare him with his theories. Andy, we don't even know his real name. We don't know where he's really from. Andy's trying to just brush him off. Les goes to Bailey, who's supposed to know everything about the employees, and asks what she can tell him about Venus. She kind of plays with him a little bit. Well, uh, you're going to think this is a little crazy at first, but uh, 
I think he's black. <gasps> Les says they don't even know where he lives, which, though we found out, is not unusual for the staff. Les motions for Andy to come into his office. I love how he does that little move to get closer, going to be very confidential. They're leaning up against the teletype. They're just standing there in the bullpen. In Les's mind, they're in his office, but they're just standing there in the bullpen. Do you realize that he comes in here late at night when none of us are around? Yes. Go on. Why do you think he does that, Andy? I think it's because he's a nighttime DJ, Les. Herb tells Andy that Carlson really wants this ad, and Andy agrees to talk with Venus tonight. As he leaves, Andy asks Bailey... See if you can get everybody's home address, okay? And Les's conspiracy brain is spinning out of control. He's sitting at his desk, thinking out loud. Why does he wear those clothes? Shut up, Les. <laughs> All those little mirrors on his trousers. I love it. They call them trousers. Well, and those little mirrors. Little mirrors on his trousers. Herb tells Les to come with him so they can get more pictures of Jennifer. And Les says... They already have lots of pictures of Jennifer. And Imagine how is the, that. How is this not surprising me? <laughs> Look, I buy the film, I say we shoot. <laughs> they head out the door, and we get a great, fun little meeting at the door gag. Johnny's coming in, Herb's headed out, they meet with the door closed, then Les pushes the door open, he goes on through. Now we've got Johnny and Herb face-to-face, they do a little thing. Just a lot of fun with the visuals. Bailey asks Johnny for his address, and Johnny's dumbfounded. Yeah address. You know, I walk by that mailbox every day. Sometimes the level of Johnny's unawareness of his surroundings is a little scary. Well, he doesn't need to know. He knows how to get there. I he guess can he get doesn't there. Well, and actually, actually, when Bailey said she wanted his address, he said, you've been there. It's <laughs> right. like, I don't need to tell you know how to get there. Then she asked for his phone number. Well, I know there are seven digits. Uh, <laughs> I, I, it starts uh, six, five, no. No, it's a two. He never calls himself. He doesn't need to know his phone number. Johnny settles in on the couch there in the bullpen, which seems to be covered with books and piles of papers. Yet this does not stop him from settling in and no, laying he down. He doesn't move them over. He just lays anything. down on them. <laughs> I know there are seven digits. Now we're in the studio, and Les is at the mic, finishing his news report. And in fact, there are many examples in history of hogs replacing horses. And after doing a fairly in-depth bit of searching, I can say with some authority, I found no instance of pigs replacing horses for anything. (laughs) Sorry, Les. Altogether, when his potential isn't repressed, as it ordinarily is... The pig is a veritable Pandora's box of exciting possibilities. I don't think he quite understands what a Pandora's box is. It's really a negative thing. It is an idiom meaning any source of great and unexpected troubles or a present which seems valuable, but which is really a curse. So them pigs is cursed. Les tells everybody to stay tuned for the Venus Flytrap show, but then he looks down at a note as though he has to find out what it is is coming up. I think he intros Venus's show every single night. It doesn't seem like it would be a surprise for him. (laughs) Stay tuned for the uh, Venus Flytrap show immediately following. Then he plays his outro, more William Woodson, without credit. This has been the early evening news with Les Nesman. 
He's got one for every day part. This is now the evening news outro. And Venus enters the studio. Well, Venus says hi to Les, and Les gets very nervous, and he begins to get up and get out of the way. Venus starts to apologize about what went down that morning. Les, about this morning. I'll just get my tear sheets and be on. I'm sorry, Venus. It's okay, man. It's okay. Good night. Yeah. Hey, look, man. I'm sorry. I tend to have a life point temper and I can get very mad very, very quickly. And then I'm horribly, horribly embarrassed about it later if I get mad. And I kind of get that <laughs> sense here with Venus. Now he's wanting to apologize to Les, but Les is still a little free. Les is trying to get out of the studio as fast as he can. And he gets up and backs into Venus's gong that is sitting there and it clangs. And the wind chimes and he hits everything on the yes. way out. <laughs> he can't get out fast enough. Venus keeps trying to apologize, but Les is out of there. Okay, now I was very surprised when Venus reached over and he's got a light set up for his show. It went to a color scheme on the lights. He was setting the atmosphere. All right, my children. This is WKRP in Cincinnati with more music and Les Nessman. And we get the very first ever more music. Les Nessman. Yes. Love The first that. reference to that phrase. And it's one of those top 10 lines that everybody knows about WKRP. That one comes up anytime you mention WKRP, somebody will say more rock and Les Nessman or more music, more music and Les Nessman. Yes. That's always one of those lines. And of course, with a line like that, we had to ask Tom Cheehawk about it. Was that yours? Whose line was that? I have no idea. Oh, man, that's such an iconic. That sounds like a, you know, to tell you the truth, that sounds like a you line, but I'll bet you anything it was a Tim Reed line. Anything that happened in the DJ's booth was generally Howard's and Tim's stuff. Then Venus puts on Flight Time by Donald Byrd. You're listening to Venus Flytrap, the first officer of funk. With clearance from the tower, seatbelts fastened, headphones on. The students will start dancing in the aisles, please, as we begin our ascent. Which does include that sound effect of an airplane. Flight Time is a 1973 release. That's the song. It's a jazz fusion freeform kind of song. It's about 11 minutes long. It comes off the Donald Byrd album Blackbird. And his last name is B-Y-R-D. And so is the album title Blackbird. He is a jazz trumpeter. Donald Byrd died in 2013. So we've got the lights down low and this really jazzy tune playing. Andy comes in and he pulls the stool out to sit on. And Venus and Andy have this little fun conversation time. Met me a nice lady last night. (laughs) Beautiful. Mm. (laughs) And all I had to say was, uh, hey, mama, what it is with your fine self? (laughs) (laughs) See, that's how black guys talk to ladies, you know, way down here. They talk to one another like this. Hey, blood, what's going on? What it is? See, then a fine lady walk by. They go, hey, mama, can I walk you home? Yeah, I can dig it. Oh, yeah. This little Venus monologue raised some questions for me. Most notably, Tom Cheehawk is white. <laughs> we asked Tom how he wound up writing about black guys. You get a show up on its feet, and everybody's going through their lines, and... By then, Tim knew his character better than I knew his character. So he probably embellished what I had written to make it sound more 
African-American or more black. Tom got to thinking about it so much, he asked Tim Reed. Now, this is from the call when uh, when Tom called me back later. I told Tim, I said, there's no way I could have written that black stuff. <laughs> he said, no, it's just the way we developed the character, you know, with, with you. They were, they were always talking. So it sounds like a lot of the character development that happened regarding Venus was being done between Tim Reed and Hugh Wilson, and then those traits were being added into the script. So that's kind of a cool insight into the Venus flytrap character. Andy asks Venus what happened this morning, and Venus tells him... Nothing, Andy, forget it. Andy asks him, why won't you let Lex take your picture? Venus, we need that picture for the advertisement. Venus wants to pass on this one, but Andy's needing a good reason. So Venus starts into this story, and he's being somewhat cryptic. There's this guy named uh, Gordon Sims, see? Yeah. Well, uh, he's hot, man. He's wanted by the law. Now, we've run into several spots where names have meaning on WKRP. We asked Tom about where he got the name Gordon Sims. I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) Okay. So (laughs) the origin of Gordon Sims, not so exciting. But just wait until we hear about our major's name. Tom totally makes up for it. Venus goes into the next song, Last Dance, by Chuck Mangione. This is your captain again, and I'm currently at 4,000 feet. Executing a southerly turn down the mighty Ohio River and headed into a deep purple frosty night with uh, no particular place to land. Chuck Mangione is a flugelhorn player, trumpeter, and composer. Born in New York in 1940, it is off of his 1977 album, Feel So Good. It is an 11-minute song. So Venus is playing some really long jams for his show. He's getting about four songs an hour in at that rate. (laughs) We head into Carlson's office, and we see Mr. Carlson hoisting a rolled-up life raft onto his desk. As he's putting it up there, he accidentally pulls the cord, causing the life raft to self-inflate. So it continues to inflate, covering his entire desk. His reaction to that and the way he interacts with that boat just cracks me up. And I get a laugh out of it every time because he's panicking. He keeps looking at the door. You can tell he's embarrassed that this is happening, but he's also thinking, how do I deal with this? What do I do? (laughs) So just his, it's like a dance watching him with that raft. And it is so much fun. Now we did some research on inflatable life rafts, the inflatable boat that we recognize today is a recent development and has only been in its current form since the beginning of the 20th century. But the idea of using buoyancy aids filled with air in a bag? We've been doing that for thousands of years. Ancient (laughs) graphics have been found showing our long-ago ancestors using inflated goat skins to cross water. In 1839, Charles Goodyear discovered the process to vulcanize rubber, making it durable and flexible. He would patent the process in 1844. In 1842 to 43, John Fremont may have been the first person to use an inflatable raft in his explorations along the Oregon Trail on the Platte River and on rivers and rapids in the Rocky Mountains. There are different kinds of inflatable boats. There are rigid inflatable boats, RIBs, 
which have a rigid floor and a solid hull, and there are soft inflatable boats, SIBs, that can be deflated and easily transported in a car or other vehicle. Inflatable boats are going to come anywhere between 6 feet and 23 feet long. Some are even made to use without board motors. Now, Art seems to have gotten one of the bigger ones. To deflate most inflatable boats, you twist the cap off of the air valve, then you push in the pin and twist until the air valve stays open on its own. Well, obviously, Carlson did not know where that air valve was. This must be new. (laughs) Jennifer opens the door, asking Carlson... Did you call me? (laughs) (laughs) No, it was the raft. So I'm thinking the raft must have pushed the button on the phone. And I wasn't even thinking that. I was just thinking the noise of the raft is what she was responding to. I didn't even give a thought to the phone. Because it's under the raft. And they call. They make a call to it later when he says he'll call his lawyer right. if he could just find his if phone. If he can find his phone. So I didn't even think about, I didn't think about the raft actually dialing Jennifer or doing something yeah. that would have triggered, I think it just triggered the intercom. pushed the button yeah. on the intercom. Jennifer and Bailey walk into the office. They're wanting to talk with... Carlson. Now, Jennifer tells Mr. Carlson that she and Bailey want to join the Women in Broadcasting Club, and they're needing underwriting is what they're wanting. Bailey wants uh, the employer to pay the dues of the members. Jennifer reminds him, oh yeah, there's an initiation fee. And Art says, sure, he's he's good with it. He's not paying um, 100% attention to them, but he seems to be very amenable to this. Carlson does ask what this association does. Oh, all sorts of important things. Uh. As a matter of fact, they're planning on picketing this very station for not having a female disc jockey. And you know, he seems pretty cool with it. (laughs) He's not really listening. He's not bugging him, though. He's like... Uh, Well, I I guess in essence, I'd be helping to pay for that. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Well, real good. (laughs) I'd be paying for it now. He's too distracted with the raft. On the way out, Bailey tells him he has a nice raft, and Carlson said that he's proud of it. Art goes to kind of an extreme. He gets a letter opener from a desk drawer, raises it above his head in both hands. He is ready to plunge that thing down into the raft. And I just didn't think that seemed like a really good idea. Thankfully, the door opens and Andy enters. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Travis. Come on in. Sacrificing rafts? He tells Mr. Carlson that they can run the car dealer ad without Venus's picture, but Carlson's not wanting to go for that. I gave a direct order, and for once, I'd like to have it carried out. Travis explains that Venus can't have his picture taken. And on cue, here comes Venus. Uh, This has become a big issue, this picture. Venus explains he's had some trouble with the law. He's hot. (laughs) What kind of trouble? Look, I can get my attorney on the phone. We get this thing taken care of. Venus doesn't think it's going to be that easy. Mr. Carlson, uh, I'm a deserter from the United States Army. He goes on to say for about eight years now, he's been running around under false names and IDs. Carlson, not very happy about this. Ran away? Man, Gordon Jump, just the way he, he does this facial expression when Venus says he's a deserter. He changes. His I whole face changes. It hardens. His face, his body, everything. It's a very foreign, shocked, shocking dis- thought to him. Yes. Yeah, it, that is high treason to be a deserter. That is a, a horrible thing. And also he was a Marine. And he was a Marine. Well, Gordon Jump was. Well, no, no, not Gordon Jump. Carlson. Art Carlson yes. was, yes. Andy is trying to defend Venus saying that eight years was a long time ago. He was a kid. He probably didn't know what he was doing. Carlson isn't hearing a thing, Travis is saying. And you can tell that Venus now is 
a different person to him. He's, yes, he's looking at him in a much at, different right. light. Well, Andy says nobody else needs to know about this. Sabas, I know. It was Vietnam. What difference is that supposed to make? Plenty. Now, we've been exposed to stories about the Vietnam War for most of our adult lives. Hearing Travis say Vietnam is not a big deal to those of us watching 40 years later. Episode writer Tom Chihok had to double check with Tim Reed, but he was pretty sure this was a historic mention for CBS back in 1979. Lou Grant did something about Vietnam a year later, but this was the first show ever that touched on Vietnam for CBS. Wow. In the in the history of CBS, according to Tim. And the, they, they were absolutely against it. They said, if you do this show, we're going to have to have military in the audience for rehearsals. That's how strict they were. When you think about it, that is amazing, especially when we move into the 80s and we look at Platoon and uh, Full Metal Jacket and all of the, we're just awash in Vietnam stories. To think, this is the first time outside of a newscast on CBS there's been any talk of Vietnam. Yeah, when he said that, I was floored. Andy, it's okay. You don't have to worry. I'm quitting. And Andy tells Mr. Carlson that they can't allow Venus to quit. Sorry, Travis, but I cannot condone this, this, can I? Venus kind of decides he doesn't have a lot to lose here, so he opens up the conversation. You were in the Marines, right? Yes. Did you see any combat? Yes. Well, for what it's worth, I saw an awful lot of combat myself. So I guess I understand how you feel. Now, when they say... It was Vietnam! What difference is that supposed to make? Plenty! Although they both saw combat, we've found out now there was a big difference between World War II and Vietnam. The average infantryman in the South Pacific, so where Art would have been during World War II saw about 40 days of combat in four years. Now, that's an average over all who were serving in the theater. The average infantryman in Vietnam saw about 240 days of combat in a single year. And that is thanks to the mobility of the helicopter and the fact that Vietnam is a much smaller theater of war. Venus admits that he's got to keep running if he doesn't want to go to prison. Carlson convinces Venus to sit down. He's going to call his lawyer. They're going to see what they can do. And boy, it has been tense up to this point. So Art gives us a little something to laugh at here. Where's my phone? <laughs> Under your raft, sir. <laughs> I looked at this as like, could this be a visual metaphor? Carlson is Venus's life raft. His friends at WKRP are his life raft. Was this kind of some symbolism? And who better to ask than the guy who wrote it? So, Tom, was that life raft a metaphor? I'm not that deep. I'm a half-hour sitcom writer then. And I'm 20, I'm in my... 20s. I had no concept of what the word metaphor meant. <laughs> it was Rod Daniel, who is, I think, the director, probably did that, but I don't think he thought it was a metaphor either. Tom said that he remembers the life raft being his idea, but something got cut out of the final episode. There was something more to that life raft than it just being there. I know there was a setup for it. 
I don't know what he was doing with the life raft now. <laughs> I cannot remember. And we really had the feeling that Gordon Jump kind of knew what he was doing when he came to making that life raft fit on his desk. I was curious, did that get done in one take? But maybe two, because we did we had two shows, one at five o'clock and one at eight o'clock. And so we probably had the five o'clock one going. And then he figured out that he had how to deal with it. So it was a dress rehearsal with the life raft. And so the second take was the eight o'clock take. And he knew that he had to, you know, kind of flip this out and adjust that and do all that. Now we are in a conference room at an army base. Now, direct U.S. involvement in Vietnam ended in 1973, and Saigon fell in 1975. Now, Venus would have left in 1971. He mentions he's been on the run for eight years, and it is 1978 or 79, so he would have served in about 71. Venus is very nervous as they enter a conference room. Rather than sit down, he turns towards the door and he tells Carlson look when they come in tell them Gordon Sims just left okay wait a minute who's Gordon Sims never mind Venus isn't so sure about this he does not have the same high opinion about the military that Art does well Major Edmund Hunter enters he is going to be the investigating officer in this case Major Hunter is being played by Nicholas Worth Nicholas Worth was born in 1937 in St. Louis he died in 2007 at the age of 69 in California of heart failure his filmography has 101 acting credits Nicholas Worth is a big, beefy man, and he was often cast as nasty villains. And he did serve in the Vietnam War as a paratrooper. And it's important to point out here, this guy is not a comic actor. When we run into extras on WKRP, they are funny. They're comic actors, and Nicholas is definitely not. He comes from a very dramatic background. Worth played a deranged, impotent Vietnam vet porn photographer who brutally strangles young ladies in the sleazy psycho gym, Don't Answer the Phone. He played a vicious homosexual criminal in the made-for-TV drama The Rape of Richard Beck. This is not a comic actor. (laughs) He played an antagonistic bully that Clint Eastwood beats up in a jail cell in Heartbreak Ridge. He had a bunch of guest spots throughout the uh, 70s and 80s. Star Trek Voyager, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, The X-Files, Night Court, Moonlighting. Now on Moonlighting, he got to sing and dance with Bruce Willis. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Fame, MacGyver, Greatest American Hero. Now, you notice these are not sitcoms. These are hours. These are dramas. Knight Rider, Hunter, Simon and Simon. So that is Nicholas Worth. And they say in real life, he was a sweet, gentle man who was also a power lifter and a bodybuilder. <laughs> Gentlemen, I'm Major Edmund Hunter. I'll be the investigating officer in this case. So you remember how there was no meaning to the name Gordon Sims? Tom totally made up for it with his story about the name Ed Hunter. Check it out. This is awesome. I can tell you where Edward Hunter came from. And Ed Hunter was the sergeant who interviewed Tim Reed or, or Venus. Ed Hunter was a friend of the family's. He lived in Des Moines. He dated Cloris Leachman uh, in high school, took her to the prom, introduced me to Cloris in L.A., said, fly out to L.A., meet Cloris. Cloris introduced me to Grant Tinker. Grant Tinker gave me the job as a gopher in MTM. 
my first show I pitched for KRP, the sergeant was Ed Edwin Hunter. What a story. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Cloris Leachman going to prom. Well, when he was telling that to us uh, during our Zoom interview, I'm just sitting there. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, oh, my gosh, as he's I, just throwing this out. I like, think eh, at eh. the end of it, there was like two seconds of silence. And then I said, that is possibly the most awesome story anyone has yet it, told us. It is. It's got to be. I it love is. that. Tom told us that story during a Zoom session we'd set aside to discuss Gordon Sims. A few days later, we did another Zoom session where we discussed I do, I do for now. But during the I do session, Tom gave us a little more detail about Cloris Leachman. If you can believe it, the great Ed Hunter story gets even better. He said, I'll introduce you to Cloris. And I think it was a phone call. And she, and, and she said, there's nothing I can do for you in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. That's where I was. Yeah. Uh, you have to come out to Hollywood. And I did. I met with her and she said, I'll introduce you to the two people I know, one in TV, Grant Tinker, and one in movies. Uh, and that was Roger Corman. He's the B-movie guy. And Roger Corman had just done a movie with Cloris called Crazy Mama, I think, Crazy Something. That sounds like a Roger Corman title. And it was under Roger Corman production. So I met with Roger Corman and up on his balcony of his, or not his, his rooftop of his office, and he had two corgis that he was playing with. And we, <laughs> and he said, you know, I'd be happy to entertain you to come to Hollywood and we'll give you a, you know, a PA job. And then I met with Grant and Grant said, uh, you know, we don't have anything open now, but in, in, beginning of the new season if anything opens up i'll let you know and so i grant let me know if you want to get coffee and wash cars we got a spot for you i was a kid from cedar rapids and i was in hollywood it's yeah. like uh, the, the, uh, my wife and i were both kids and my wife susan would was at one time outside the studio and she saw somebody that she's thought she knew from Cedar Rapids and she was waving to her, hi, hi. And it was Harriet Nelson from Ozzie and Harriet. And I said, no, she's not from Cedar Rapids. But that's how naive we were. We were just these two kids. Venus introduces himself. Hi, I'm Gordon Sims. Venus, that's not going to work. And we get a little chuckle there. Art's still a little slow on the uptake with the whole <laughs> Venus is not my real name. Hunter begins talking to Venus, addressing him as Mr. Sims. He's not Sims. His name is Venus Flytrap. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Mr. Carlson. Okay, they're keeping us they're keeping us in a few laughs here, but just wait, gang. It's going to get tough. But we still get a few more giggles because pointing to Carlson, Hunter continues. Then you're Sims. How many years have you been hiding? And you know, the fact that Nicholas is not a comic actor, I think, makes a lot of his lines in this situation even funnier. And he's a very believable major. Oh, very. Definitely. Yes. Venus identifies himself as Gordon Sims, and he asks what's going to happen to him. Well, they're not going to shoot him, are they? We don't do that anymore. Now, Hunter explains he's reviewed the Army's report about Venus, but he wants to hear his side of the story. Well, before getting into Venus's story, which is very heavy, Hugh gives us one more laugh. Now, now this is a story. You, you write this down. Who is this guy? <laughs> My father. And you know, when Venus says that, Carlson kind of sits back in his chair like, yeah, I'm, feels a little I'm cool proud. with that. Yeah, I'm he feels okay a little proud that. of that. Okay, now we're going to play this entire clip of Tim Reed telling Gordon Sims' 
story. It is almost a three-minute monologue, but it truly is riveting. I had just come back from what seemed like my 8,000 firefight. I was with a guy we call Weird Larry. Weird Larry used to uh, sleep all day and then go out at night to hunt. He'd shoot anything. I was just the opposite. I got so I couldn't pull the trigger. Some got like that. Some got like Weird Larry. I got so I hated Weird Larry's guts. Well, anyway, we were on our way out, and uh, we got a chopper to Saigon. Were you planning to desert then? No. We were on our way home. It was over for us. <clears throat> well, anyway, uh, right outside of Da Nang, the uh, chopper got a call from an S&D team. They had some Viet Cong prisoners, and uh, we put down in this small village, and five minutes later, we were back in the air with uh, three Charlies, uh, a couple Arvan and Turgators, our guys, the people we were fighting to help, right? And you went to Saigon? Yeah. But on the way, they start questioning these prisoners, and I don't think they wanted to talk because, uh, well, because they tossed one of them right out the door. Right out the door. We had about a thousand feet. Go on. Yeah. Well, uh, they got this other guy, and there he goes. Weird Larry and I were just kind of sitting there watching all of this, and all of a sudden, Weird starts giggling like he's loving this, right? Then he turned at me, and he smiled. And uh, he stood up, and he walked right out the door, too. Boy, we learned show me what it was right, right about, right then and there. I saw it. After 10 months and 29 days, I finally got it. Yeah. Well, something just snapped. Uh, Weird took his way out. I decided to take mine. So when we got back to the States, I turned left and instead of turning right at the airport. And that was the last anybody ever saw old Gordon Sims easy. Isn't that amazing? One day you are, you know, chopper over Nam with a guy named Weird Larry, and a few days later you're driving down the freeways of L.A. And you're not even 23 yet. Even though I was in junior high when all of this stuff was happening, but I wasn't really listening to the news or paying attention. So some of these terms I wanted to look up. And they do fly right by. Venus uses them in the speech as though they're very common to him, which they would be as someone who served. But for us, they might be a little foreign, like S&D team, uh, which radioed them to come down and pick up the Charlies. Well, the S&D team is search and destroy. Charlies is used as a collective name for the Viet Cong during the war in Vietnam. And the VC, or the Viet Cong, were this very, very dangerous arm of the North Vietnamese army. Now, he also mentions that they picked up some Arvins. He just said, we picked up Arvins. That's a term, A-R-V-N, which is actually an abbreviation for the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. The Arvins were the good guys. They're who we were helping, but uh, they are the ones who 
did the throwing of the guys out the helicopter. So not the best of good guys. His speech was riveting, and it really was. And Tom said, even without jokes, the power of that story carried the episode. As I remember, that's pretty much all my stuff. It's probably what really sold the show to the network, that story. We probably all added to it. I had done it, written it so long ago, and Tim had had really found it so well that I think it all came together. Actor, writer, director. The horrifying idea of throwing people out of helicopters came from a 1977 book called Dispatches by William Herr. Tom said that this book made an impression. I think I had read Dispatches first. There was an episode about throwing people out of helicopters to to interrogate them. It was they threw out one Viet Cong, and now they said to the next one, either talk or you're going out the window too. He didn't talk, and then they threw him out, and the third one just blabbed away. And that's to me, was the most horrific story I had heard. And there were a lot of stories in about Vietnam. Now, this is probably some of the least enjoyable research I've ever done for this podcast, but executing prisoners by throwing them out of a helicopter or a plane does have a name. They are called death flights. Death flights were flown weekly in Argentina from 1976 until 1983 and accounted for the deaths of nearly 30,000 Argentinian rebels. So they are a common thing in some parts of the world. Now, it should be noted that no report of a death flight was ever lodged against a U.S. helicopter pilot in Vietnam. A death flight is a war crime. It violates the Geneva Convention. Her has said his description was not based on an event he witnessed, but was created from stories he had heard. It is possible that both the North and South Vietnamese were conducting death flights. After Venus has told his story, then Carlson wants to know what's going to be done. Hunter asks Venus if they could speak without his father present. Oh, no. No, 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 you don't. Listen, I know how the Army works. The Marines used to work the same way. Oh, boy, you guys take the cake. Mr. Sims, you will stay on this base until I finish my investigation. And it could take a couple of weeks. You know, that whole thing in the interrogation room, the investigation room, when Venus gets up after telling part of his story, and he walks over to the window. It has such a feel of a play. And I really was reminded of like an Aaron Sorkin, like a few good men, and the intensity and really the set construction. It just felt like we were looking at something in a theater. And just the the whole atmosphere was very tense. But you know what else? I'm looking at that thinking... Why doesn't Tim Reed have his own show? My goodness, this guy is good. Uh, And then, of course, he did go on to have his own show and then some. Carlson says that he wants justice now or he will take it to Washington. He does not want to wait. He feels like the Army's going to give Venus the runaround. We're just going to keep you here and we're going to be, quote unquote, investigating while you're stuck here. So Art's wanting to move things along and he kind of pushes Hunter to take some action. I think a general discharge might be in order. I don't think there'll be a trial. Carlson tells Venus he's going to have his stuff sent over. This is the best possible outcome. Venus is going to have to stay on the base for a couple of weeks, but everything's going to be okay. So feeling very relieved, you know, Venus and Carlson, they shake hands, and then Venus maneuvers their hands around to the thumb clasp or soul brother handshake is what it's called. Also called the bro shake 
or the homey shake. According to Urban Dictionary, this type of handshake became popular during the civil rights movement to show solidarity among black people. Venus is relieved. Really? I think under the circumstances. And I thought that this would have been a great ending to this episode, but they do come back for a final scene. You know, if it had been the play, that is where they would have ended it. I think if that were the play, they'd have gotten up, walked out of the room, everybody applauds, lights down. But this is a sitcom, so we need to leave you with a few laughs. So we come back to the lobby. Les is standing at Jennifer's desk, and Bailey enters with a list of complete addresses and phone numbers for everyone. Here you go, Jennifer. A complete and up-to-date list of all the employees, <laughs> their home addresses and Phone numbers. Thank you, Bailey. Now, Bailey goes over to Art's door. She's just about to knock, and we get the resolution of our raft story. It's a big kaboom. It's such a violent sound that Bailey decides she's not going to open the door. She just slides a copy of the new contact sheet under the door and leaves. And nobody goes in to see what that noise was or if Carlson is okay. Do you get the idea that maybe there are a lot of weird noises coming out of Art's office all the time? (laughs) They just don't think anything about it. It's like, "Eh, it's just Art. It's the big guy. Well, Les asks to see the list of contacts and he finds Venus's info. Wendy, Venus gave us his address and his phone number. Uh Uh-huh. Now, Tom told us that this show was the last show shot for the season. CBS didn't want to do the show, and he remembered there being a lot of controversy surrounding it. Tom couldn't remember the details, so he checked in with Tim Reed. He got back to us with this incredible story. I said I knew it was the last show, and... Tim agreed with me. It was the last show. Not only agreed with me, he told me the whole story, why it was. CBS said, absolutely not. We don't do anything about Vietnam ever. And we were down to the last show. We didn't have any scripts left. And she said, you got to give me more money to write another script. And CBS, thinking that we were going to be canceled, said, we're not putting any more money into this show. They said, absolutely not. And then then Hugh said, well, then we have to shoot this Vietnam show. And that's when they said, okay, but uh, you're going to have to, from now on, the company back to MTM. Because we got to keep an eye on you. We can't trust you at KTLA anymore. (laughs) Oh, wow. So that's why they moved them back over to MTM? Yeah, because I guess the president... Tim told me that the president of CBS back then absolutely hated you with a passion. <laughs> and he said, if we pick up this show, you're not going to be you're not going to be on your own anymore. You guys, we got to keep an eye on you. Oh, and that's wow. why we moved back to KTLA because they had to keep a watchful eye or back to MTM lot because they had to keep a watchful eye on it. And that's going to do it for Who is Gordon Sims. Thanks so much to Mr. Tom Cheehawk, first season story editor and writer of this episode for taking the time to share his stories. What's up for next week? Next week is I Do, I Do, for now. Jennifer receives an unexpected visit from a gentleman she knew from her past. He reminds her of a deal they made when they were younger. 
Johnny gets accidentally thrown into Jennifer's story, which leads to an unforgettable evening. This is also our first look at Jennifer's apartment. And big bonus, this episode was also written by Tom Chihawk, and he's got some stories for us about it as well. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. And thanks for joining us. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, WKRPCast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye. May the good news be yours. The WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!